0: all right good morning oh that was so weak good morning ah so much better somebody even called me by name thank you it was great to sing joy to the world with you this morning i think that about puts a wrap on our christmas music for the year um just been great dustin thank you for your leadership uh, this, this whole month of December. If you were there on Christmas Eve, I think we had probably about 300 or 1,300 people uh, throughout our three services on Christmas Eve. And uh, just a, a beautiful time together. One of the, I think, uh, best Christmas Eve services, candlelight services we've ever had together. So um, if you think back, though, to, to the songs that, that have echoed through our church this month, or the songs that have been on your playlists at home or, or, or in the car. Almost all of them share a predominant thing, theme, which is the reign of Christ as king. We just sang it just now. My favorite Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it was written by Charles Wesley in 1739. It says, glory to the newborn king. Another familiar song says, peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king. Born a child, yet a king says another famous song and yet another one says the king of kings salvation brings let loving hearts enthrone him at christmas it is both impossible and inappropriate to get away from the truth that jesus christ is the king to try and make it all about family or food or or solely about the seven pound baby jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger that just misses the point entirely This is a king that has been born, and that should be the theme of the Christmas season. And I would say a similar thing about the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is a gospel with an overriding theme, and that theme is kingdom. Fifty-six times the word kingdom is found in the book of Matthew. Thirty-two times the phrase kingdom of heaven is used. The title that Dr. John Walvoord, longtime president of Dallas Seminary, the title that he gave to his commentary on the book of Matthew was Thy Kingdom Come. The title that Stanley Toussaint gave to his commentary was Behold the King. James Montgomery Boyce, he titled his commentary on Matthew, The King and His Kingdom. This is why our Advent sermon series, where thus far we have focused on Matthew chapter 1 and 2, It has been all about Jesus coming as king. It's in perfect keeping with the theme of this gospel. And so today, I want to take a step or two beyond the birth and early life of Jesus, and I want us to flip over to Matthew chapter 4. And there we see how Jesus begins his earthly ministry, because what we'll find out is that this kingdom theme shows up there as we go forward. And as you make your way to chapter 4, let me just say a word about anticipation. That's the title of this message, the anticipation of the king. We are, by nature, men and women who anticipate and have great expectations for what is to come. That's in our nature. We've done it our entire lives. We, we doggedly pursue the next thing. We, we perpetually desire whatever is just out in front of us. Even on our good days, we, we are driven by the thought that there are even better days ahead. So not only do we have a mentality that says, "Man, today is awful, but tomorrow's going to be better, even when today is awesome, tomorrow is going to be better." And we just habitually chase that better day, that greener grass. We say to ourselves, "If I can just get past this. If I can only get out from under this, soon I'll be living there or I'll be in a relationship with, with this individual. My plan is to be working at this place or making this salary or having this many vacation days or to finally be retired by a certain age. Anticipation and expectation are a massive, massive driver for us each day, both on a big picture scale and on a small personal scale as well. Because think about this. I had an older pastor tell me this very early on in ministry. He said, remember, Jay, all frustration is birthed out of unmet expectation. All frustration is birthed out of unmet expectation. So if you see a marriage that's on fire, if you see a person who's angry, if you see someone who's busted up and, and bitter, here's what's happened. They've had expectations. They've been anticipating a certain outcome. And when what they expected out of someone or out of some circumstance, when it didn't come to pass, their response to that unmet expectation is the dysfunction that you see working out in their life. I find this to be true in my own life, that if I get really frustrated, if I, if I feel those disappointments surge in me, the ones that are prone to surge in me, They're almost always linked to the fact that I had an expectation, I had an anticipation, but things turned out completely different from what I had expected, and that pretty much leads me to behaving like a child. All frustration is birthed out of unmet expectation, which, that's a dangerous truth in the month of December, because this whole season that we've been in the midst of is built on anticipation. You roll out the decorations. Some of you roll them out before Thanksgiving. Some of you are on the Hobby Lobby calendar, which means your tree was staged and ready to go in August. Some of you guys, you were, you were testing lights for the house on Labor Day weekend, getting things ready to go. You're anticipating, you're, you're asking for Christmas lists before school starts. You're getting ready. You're you're stockpiling ingredients. You're you're nailing down the calendar with the family. You're getting it all ready to go months in advance because you want to enjoy Christmas. That's what you say. I want to have my presents bought before Labor Day so I can enjoy Christmas. And one of the things that plays into all of this buildup and all of this idealized planning is what Mark Sayers, he's he's a pastor in Australia... It's what he calls hyper-reality, hyper-reality. That's the Western consumeristic frame that's been placed around Christmas, which means over the last six weeks or so, that's what every commercial and every television special has been hitting you with, hyper-reality. Even the classic movies that we're drawn to in this season, they promise a reality that just can't line up with our actual life. What, what do we see commercial after commercial? What do we see show after show? We see that Christmas is about getting a brand new Lexus in the driveway on Christmas morning. It means we're all going to get kissed because we went to K. It means all bad relationships get reconciled in the end. Even Buddy and his dad. There's a lot of anticipation built into this season, and it builds to an apex on on Christmas morning at at that point when when the presents are all opened and and the stockings are empty and and the breakfast is eaten, and you very quickly realize that your desire for a hyper-reality was just a false, shadowy crescendo, and you say to yourself, well, I guess that was it. And so with this Advent Sermon Series, what what I hope we've been able to do this month is stir your sense of wonder about what's really going on at Christmas, about what we as Christians are are really celebrating. That's been the content of the first three weeks of our Advent series, as we've looked at the ancestry of the King and the arrival of the King and, and the worship, the adoration of the King. But now on December 30th, Now now that Christmas is over and the decorations are going back in the box and and the recipes are are going back into their place, I want us to look to the future. I want us to think about the second coming of Christ, and I want our anticipation of of hyper-reality redeemed by an everyday expectancy that transforms the way we live. I want us longing for Jesus' return in a way that grants us a seriousness over sin and that gives us a passion to follow the Lord Jesus every day. That's my plan. I'm going to have three points. I won't just be in one text. I'm going to move in between the book of Matthew and the Old Testament book of Isaiah a little bit, so you might mark a place there. But let's start in Matthew 4. I'm going to be reading in verse 12 to verse 17 as I get here into point number one. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is God's word. Now, as I said earlier, Mark taught from Matthew chapter 2 last week, and so now we've jumped ahead to chapter 4, which means we're way past the Magi visiting Jesus, we're past the ministry of John the Baptist, we're past the baptism of Jesus, past the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. This text places us at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and the start of that ministry involves a move to a place called Capernaum. Capernaum is a fishing, fishing village on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. So just a quick geography lesson. Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel. Galilee is in the north. The Sea of Galilee is a very deep lake that flows into the Jordan River, which flows south to the, to the lowest elevation on planet Earth, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, an area about 15 or 20 uh, miles due east of the city of Jerusalem. So Capernaum is a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee, this is in the north, and, and today you can visit Capernaum. It is probably the most well-excavated site of all the locations around the Sea of Galilee. The home of Peter's mother-in-law has been excavated, a, a, a first-century synagogue has been, has been on earth there as well, and it's Capernaum that becomes Ministry HQ, becomes headquarters for Jesus. But it wasn't just because he liked the scenery, it wasn't because he had some friends there This text tells us it was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet. And that's who's quoted there in verse 15. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 9 verse 1. That verse speaks of Naphtali and Zebulun. These were two of the ten tribes who had settled in that northernmost region of Israel. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This whole region of Galilee is marked off as the place that the Messiah would show up. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know those ten northern tribes, the northern kingdom. After hundreds of years of apostasy and of evil kings, they had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. That was the year of their downfall. Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian king, he marched his armies into the region and he just decimated it took people captive, laid waste to all the cities. And this is why the northern region was called the region of death. Galilee is actually an Aramaic term. It means captivity. And after being conquered where where those northern tribes had been located, a Gentile population was grafted in. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, the the northern part of Israel is called Galilee of the Nations because so many Gentiles lived in that region. About 3 million people lived in Galilee in the first century, so it's fairly densely populated. But yet, Jews and Gentiles together. And because of the social makeup of Galilee, there was no forgetting that this region had been subjected to war and to death and ultimately to captivity. And because of this, this negative history, The Jews who lived in the south, those in and around Jerusalem, they always despised those who were from Galilee. They looked upon them as hicks, as bad stock, as descendants of the people that had conquered them. Therefore, the people in Jerusalem had nothing to do with the Galileans. And the real upshot of all of that is that in the minds of someone from Jerusalem, there would be no way that a prophet or a king could hail from Galilee. No way. And that mood toward Galilee explains why in John chapter 1, when Nathanael, Nathanael, who would become one of the 12 disciples, when he is told that Jesus is from Nazareth in Galilee, he says, Nazareth? What good has ever come from Nazareth? Nathaniel should have thought, oh yeah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But what Jesus is doing in verse 15 of Matthew 4, in quoting verse 1 of Isaiah 9, what he's saying is that when Messiah comes, when the king comes, he is not going to come or be from or show up in Rome or in Jerusalem or from any place you'd think a king would be from. He'll be from Galilee. The area that's characterized by gloom and death, in contempt since 722 B.C., the region of darkness, the area held by Naphtali and Zebulun, the region that nobody esteems anymore. It will be made glorious. Look at verse 16, straight from Isaiah 9-2. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The people who have walked in darkness, that word darkness actually means death shadow. The people who walked in the death shadow, they've been exposed to a great light. And the death shadow is such an appropriate term because without light, all you have is death. Light is the key to life. I was reading a short article in Popular Science magazine, and it explained what would happen if the sun just went out. If if the earth's source of light and heat just went out, obviously a few catastrophic things would take place first of them would be, it would be zero degrees Fahrenheit on Earth by the end of that day. Minus 100 degrees in just a few short months. We'd ultimately settle into a surface uh, temperature around minus 400 degrees. Not only that, photosynthesis would stop immediately. So the plants would stop emitting oxygen into the air, which means oxygen would be depleted very, very quickly. And so needless to say, life on Earth would be basically over. And that ultimately means what? It means light is the key to life. Sun goes dark, we go dark. Sir Walter Scott, he tells how a young boy, when he was a young boy in Scotland, he he would stand on the porch of his home and he would watch the old gas lamplighter switch on the lights throughout the town. And as he moved from place to place, Scott followed the lamplighter's path by the small pools of light that he would leave behind. And as he got closer to his home, the young Scot would run in and he would call to his mother, 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 come and see a man who was punching holes in the darkness. Such a great term, isn't it? This is an excellent definition of the mission of Jesus. It's an excellent definition of the mission of the church as well. People who punch holes in the darkness. Jesus punching a hole in the darkness. We are to be a people who punch holes in the moral and spiritual and cultural darkness of the world. People who allow the the light of the gospel to bring salvation and, and to bring healing. Which this is why Jesus did not set up his ministry headquarters in Jerusalem, but rather he set it up in the death shadow. In the place so desperate for light in the region characterized by war, in the place where the outcasts live, where, where people on the periphery resided, people who would not be sought for positions of honor or power. I hope you, I hope you see the beautiful message in that reality. I hope you do. You know, you, you might have felt like an outcast your whole life. Maybe you were never in the inner circle. Maybe socially you were always looked down upon. Maybe your family of origin, whatever the case may be. Wherever you're at in your darkness, in your outcastness, it's your heart that Jesus wants to put his headquarters in. If you're here and you don't know the Lord and you say, you know, I've never felt religious enough, well, Jesus came to Galilee. If you say, I've never felt spiritually pulled together enough, well, Jesus came to those who were sitting in the darkness, You say, well, I just don't feel alive. There's no life in me. Jesus came to those dwelling in the shadow of death. This just shows us, exclaims to us, that wherever you are in your darkness, however you've categorized your sin as unforgivable, Jesus wants to come in and make residence there. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, if the excuse you've made is, I've done too much, My heart's too dark, I can never be changed. Look to Christ, look to his light for it to come into your life. People who walk in darkness in the death shadow, they, we, we need the light. So light has come in Jesus Christ. He he's proclaiming it himself. He'll he'll declare this very same thing again in John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, after healing a blind man, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. But he's also proclaiming something that is coming with the light. And it's how verse 17 summarizes his preaching. This is what Jesus was preaching there in verse 17. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is declaring the dawning of a kingdom. It being at hand means that it was being offered in the person of the prophesied king. This was the message of John the Baptist. He was the forerunner of the king, he prepared the people for the king's arrival. And now that the king has arrived, he is addressing his subjects, and the message is exactly the same as the one who prepared the way repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not fulfilled, but it's at hand. It's made visible in the arrival of the Lord Jesus. But speaking of fulfilled, this is important. Let's look at this next point. I think it helps us see just what is meant by this idea of kingdom and its arrival. For this next point, we have to turn back to Isaiah 9. This is Isaiah 9 is Jesus' source material for his declaration about the arrival in Galilee. And Isaiah 9 is more than a geography lesson. It's a theology lesson about the Messiah's reign. So Isaiah 9, I won't read the whole chapter. just want to read two verses, verses 6 and 7. These will be familiar to you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase, uh, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a beautiful passage. You can't think but help of Handel's Messiah as you read there in. Verse 6. But before we talk about these details, you need to be reminded that the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, the Old Testament prophets, in the same breath, they would often speak of the first coming and the second coming of the Lord. In the same breath, they would do this. First coming and second coming appeared to the Old Testament prophets as one great entity, one marvelous promise, one, one glorious revealed truth. It's kind of like looking at a star. You know, to our naked eyes, as we, as we look up at the heavens, as we survey the, the canopy of space above us, and when we see a, a single bright star, we're just overwhelmed. It just looks brilliant. But if, but if you get a telescope, in some instances, you'll find that that one bright star is not one, but it's actually two stars. And, and they're separated one behind the other by millions of light years. Or if stars aren't your thing, think about looking at a mountain range. A mountain range. What from miles away appears to you to maybe be one mountain. When you get there, when you get up close, you find that it's two mountains. One behind the other, and a great valley lies in between them. And this is the way it is with the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. To the prophet, it looked as though it were one event. But it's actually two events. Just by way of example, this is a passage I referenced a couple of weeks ago, Genesis 3.15. The proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first promise of a a redeemer, a deliverer, a savior. God says to the serpent, after Adam and Eve has sinned, God declares, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, as of one. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the first coming. You shall bruise his heel. You're going to nail him to the cross. But he will crush your head. That's the second coming. And yet both of them are presented there in the same breath, in the same sentence, thousands of years apart, viewed as one event. Or think about 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is where the Davidic covenant is established. This is Nathan the prophet speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. That's the first coming of the Messiah. But now the second coming, and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. That's the second coming. I don't see any throne of David right now anywhere on this earth. Nor do I see that kind of kingdom. But there is coming. There is coming a millennial reign of Christ when he will dispense judgment and justice to the ends of the earth and he will do it from the throne of his father David. That's the second coming. Yet both of them are here in this same breath of scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And really, we we could do this exercise all day long, but what I really want you to see is that's what we have going on in Isaiah 9. We have a text Uh, about Jesus coming as a child. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That's his first coming. But then you have, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and upon his kingdom to uphold it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from this time forth and forevermore. That's the second coming. And just look at what's being described there in verse 7. A government is, That's on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus. Boy, do we need that. What else is being described? Peace that will be endless. Endless peace. Did you know that over 99.9% of recorded history, there has been war somewhere on planet Earth? Tribal warfare, gang warfare, geopolitical warfare, whatever. We are a people who are at war constantly. We need peace. It also says a throne established with judgment and justice. Judgment and justice, as as mostly white, middle-class American people, we don't bump up against injustice all that much. But for much of the world, and for much of world history, injustice has been a way of life. It's been something you can't get out from underneath. Just listen to how Chuck Swindoll describes the millennial kingdom of Christ. He says, it'll be a golden age in which all weapons of war will be fashioned into implements of peace. Prosperity will be shared. Peace will become the banner of all people. The light of justice will illumine every corner of the world. John MacArthur, he says, there's coming a kingdom and Jesus Christ will reign in justice and in righteousness. A king is coming. He has the right to rule. He came once and offered his kingdom and man nailed him to the cross, but he'll be back. He'll be back to bring his kingdom. It won't be offered next time. It will be brought and established in the earth. You say, I'd like to be a part of that kingdom. Well, only those who know and love him will be. Really and truly, Jesus' return as king should be the greatest expectation of your life. It should. But it's funny, very often that's not our greatest expectation, is it? Our lives are, are lulled to sleep by, by comfort and pleasure and, and wealth and, and relative good health. You know, it's amazing. 300 years ago, even kings froze to death. But today in America, we're comfortable, all of us. We're exempted from the suffering that that most of the world either experiences now or has experienced throughout all time. You know, in in middle-class America where we live, we we see the coming of Christ like, like an upgrade at a nice hotel. We get a little bit better existence than we're already experiencing. But so much of the world throughout history has lived in the midst of war and poverty and slavery and disease. These conditions... You and I, we wouldn't last a day in them. Just imagine the longing, imagine the anticipation for his coming kingdom, for this age when when God's going to put an end to all of these awful conditions and he'll institute a reign of, of, of absolute peace and righteousness and justice. A Liberian missionary was surprised by a question that he had never been asked before concerning Christ's second coming. The man asked him, Reverend, the Bible says that Christ will descend with a shout, with a loud command. I would like to know what that command will be. The missionary recalls the moment vividly. He says, I wanted to leave the question unanswered. I wanted to tell him not to go past what Scripture has revealed. But my mind wandered to an encounter I had earlier in the day with a refugee from the Liberian Civil War. The man told me how he was apprehended by A squad of men, after several hours of terror and torture, he narrowly escaped to find that his family had been killed. The stark cruelty unleashed on an unsuspecting, undeserving population had touched me deeply. The missionary says, I saw flashbacks of the beggars that I pass each morning on my way to the office. Every day I I see people who look for a reason to go on living. I'm haunted, he says, by the vacant eyes of people who have lost every shred of hope. But then the questioner asked again, Reverend, what will you say? What will he shout? His question had not gone away. And I responded by saying, enough. He will shout enough when he returns. A look of surprise came upon the man's face. What do you mean enough? I answered, enough suffering. Enough starvation, enough fear, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness, enough time, enough. And then look at that last point there, the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Because the previous verses seem to promise way, way, way too much, The prophetic words describing the coming kingdom, they have this guarantee that's tacked onto them. That the passion of the Lord is going to bring all of this to pass. When this was written in the 730s BC, the Assyrians, (coughs) excuse me, they were taking control of the north. They were knocking on the doorstep of Judah, of the southern kingdom as well. Tiglath-Pileser was unleashing his brutal forces. These promises about peace and justice and righteousness and an established kingdom, these seemed impossible. The people in Isaiah's day were going to have a lot of trouble believing what was being written here. And you know what? People in our day, they have trouble believing these prophetic plans globally culturally theme you know things just seem very very bleak it seems the lord the, the lord has tarried way too long his promises they must have run out but it's the zeal of the lord who will get this done what may seem unbelievable is not only credible it is certain it is destined it is going to happen He fulfilled the first half. He will fulfill the second half. So anticipation redeemed is when we begin to believe and embrace that the same God who promised that a son would be given also said that that divine son, the God-man, he's going to come again. In the first advent, Jesus comes as a baby in a manger. But when Christ comes to fully usher in the kingdom, to institute his reign, when that day comes, he's not going to come as a baby who needs to be swaddled. He's going to come on a white horse, and a sword's going to be coming out of his mouth. You don't swaddle a guy with a sword coming out of his mouth. He comes to judge the living and the dead, to bring judgment on the nations. He, he, He won't show up to shepherds on a hillside. He'll crack open the sky. The, man says, uh, the Bible says that men will flee to the mountains, but that the mountains will flee before the Lord. Sounds terrifying, doesn't it? That, that men want mountains to fall on them, but there's nowhere to hide. That's the return of Jesus as king. Not Jesus the baby, but Jesus as king. And we are one day closer to that day today than we were yesterday. And each day that goes on, we're one day closer And each day that dawns, we need to be saying, perhaps today. But most of us, we do not have our expectation and our anticipation set on that moment, do we? We don't. We tend just to live silly little lives. But I'm telling you this, if you think Jesus can return at any moment, at any time, I I think what you would find is, is more strength to fight in that fight against sin. If you think Jesus is really coming back, that there's a, a, a day coming as, as certain as the arrival of the Messiah as a baby, if you believe that the coming king is going to crack open the sky and that, that that could occur at any time, you would begin to dial your heart into the things that eternally matter. And you would find that the transient things that you you tend to dwell on are pretty much worthless. So as I conclude, just let's review some of the key texts that speak of the imminence of Christ's return. And I just want you to notice specifically what kind of practical duties this doctrine, this this understanding of Christ's return, what, what is then placed on us. You might consider these as resolutions. Maybe you have your resolution list already figured out. Maybe you're still sort of up in the air. Maybe you're like, I don't do resolutions. Well, take a look at these. Take a look at these. 1 John 3, 2 through 3. It says, when he is revealed, when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, this hope of his coming, in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. What's the resolution? Purity. Seek purity of life. How about 2 Peter 3.11? Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, all of this stuff, all this life of ours, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness? Holy conduct. Here's a resolution. Hebrews 10.24-25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Be here, be with God's people, worship together. Let that be a resolution. 1 Peter 4:7 To end, <clears throat> excuse me, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Prayer, rejuvenation of your prayer life. Let that be a resolution. James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble. Be kind. Extend grace. Let that be a resolution. And then James 5.8, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts, be steadfast, be firm, be a sure and strong believer in Christ. Let that be a resolution. I don't offer these resolutions as a way to to merit salvation or to put some heavy yoke upon you. It's, It's not what I do. I offer them as a way to urge you to stay awake. Don't get lulled to sleep by comfort. Don't get pushed to despair by the condition of the world. The hope of Christ's imminent return is is a catalyst and an incentive for godliness. The King is coming. Let every heart prepare Him room because He's coming. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we are so grateful for the promises that come straight to us this time of year, the promises about light and life and salvation and all of that coming in the incarnation of your son, all the attention on Jesus as we've worshiped together these past few weeks. Lord, I pray that as we move forward now that all the attention would be on Jesus as we worship together in these weeks and months to come. Lord, but we have to say, we have to pray these things in accordance with your will. If you tarry, these will be our designs. Lord, give us steadfastness. Give us purity. Give us holiness of conduct. Give us a, a, a driven and intentional prayer life. Give us kindness and grace toward one another. These are the things that we do as we earnestly await your arrival. Lord, we thank you for that promise. What hope it has for us this day. I pray that we could carry that hope away from this place and share it uh, with the people in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.